I think especially when you start with a frame of reference from a kiddo is or, or a child is what a disaster is to them is any disruption to what they know as their regular routine. And the same skills that you use at scale, you know, the same tips and communication and staying calm and all those things, they're universal. Welcome to Glorious Professionals brought to you by GoRuck Media. I'm Jason McCarthy here with Emily. And our guest today on episode 10 is Linda Mansalillo. both a medical officer in the Air Force Reserve and a biotech strategist. She has deep expertise in disaster preparedness and believes that communities become more resilient when individuals take responsibility for preparing their families. Over the course of her 24 years of military service, Linda has traveled extensively to work with nations, FEMA, and Health and Human Services to better prepare for any type of disaster, be it wildfires, earthquakes, hurricanes, or what we find ourselves facing today, a global pandemic. Linda, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's let's start with your your background and sort of what drew you to military service. Sure. You know, I, I know your own story, right? I mean, there's a lot of people that join the military for a sense of patriotic call or various reasons. Mine is not not so exciting. I was a tough kid. I lived in a big home, lots of siblings, and thought I knew everything at the age of 17. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in Missouri. Um, my parents are San Diego natives, but they moved to Missouri. And um, yeah, so a year later, I found myself regretting that wisdom I had at 17 and really needing a way to uh, reinvent my future. And uh, next thing you know, I enlisted in the Air Force. And so disasters were calling you eventually. <laughs> yeah, apparently I was uh, always geared for things that kind of seem a little chaotic and then making sense later on. So what was that, what was that journey like in the Air Force? I mean, you're, you're at 24 years now. Yeah. What, what was the beginning of, of that career like? You know, when I first joined the military, um, I did not have a very worldly perspective. I mean, I was adopted at a very young age and, and, and knew kind of conceptually about the world. Um, but, you know, joining basic training and, and, and going into a, a place where you're, you know, one of 60 people that are part of a team from all over, right, the United States and even the world. We had a couple um, folks in our unit that were from other parts of the world. Um, and just learning that the world is so much bigger than you and that you succeed together was just a game changer. It really reframed a lot of my, I wouldn't say it took away my, you know, original thought or independence, but it taught me to use it in a constructive way with others to do something greater than I could do by myself. And that was really appealing. So I, I did my five years active duty and then, you know, reserves and guard and so on and so on. And, and I really can't see myself putting away my combat boots yet. That's awesome, Linda. Did you know when you got in that you were going to have a medical sort of track? Yeah, you know, I always thought, um, I mean, from as little as I can remember, I, I, I remember drawing on a quilt in first grade. I wanted to be a doctor. Somebody else drew the doctor and the teacher said, you can't be a doctor because this other kid is already the doctor. And I'm like, oh, fine, I'll be an optometrist because it's like a doctor. So I knew early on that I was drawn to helping people and that I loved science. Um, and, and I really thought I would join the military and, and go through their medical school program. Uh, but one of my early mentors, a pathologist in the lab with 
with me at Eglin, he said, you know, I see the way you think and I see the way um, you operate. And I think medicine is heading in a direction that's going to feel highly prescriptive and, and maybe even disappointing to you. And I think you should take this love of science and couple it with a business degree and then go set the world on fire. Um, and I was shocked that he was giving me that advice as a physician himself. But I will always, always be grateful to him at the time he was Major Warner, right, for, uh, for, for that little nudge. And, and he was spot on. You know, that's how I ended up in biotech. That's really cool. So where are you now then? What is your sort of day job that you do um, before, you know, when you're not serving the military and, and doing your reserve duty? Sure. Yeah. So I um, was lucky and landed uh, early on after separating from active duty uh, to work for a biotechnology company. So I found my way out to Southern California and um, that's where I've been able to stay for, for quite a long time now. I work as a strategist and I work with health systems and you get to do all, like I said, all the science and all the business comes together quite nicely. So Southern California, lots of disaster material for you. <laughs> so tell yes. us, yeah, tell us a little bit about how you got into disaster preparation. That's a great question. Yeah. So when I, when I was in the National Guard, we did a lot of statewide exercises, you know, planning for everything, right? We've got it, earthquakes, mudslides, fires, <laughs> populations at scale. Um, and early on, um, I rose to sort of some positions where I would work with this, um, it was called SURF-P for all the chemical, you know, you, you know, all of those acronyms. So they, they had me working with those teams and, and I loved it. I loved seeing how the military could partner with the civilian population and take in the myriad of what could seem like incongruent information and, and really make, you know, your, your community safer and, and sounder. So, so that's where it really piqued my interest. Of course, you know, there's various exercises I participated in. Probably one of the sentinel moments for me was uh, we were at an exercise in Wisconsin and it was with multi-service, you know, exercise going on for days. And there was actually in the middle, we were set up in this, this hangar as a bunch of medics waiting for our moulage patients to come in to practice our, you know, different, uh, skills. And there was an electricity, um, big electricity strike and it struck a tent pole in the middle of and then that transformer in the middle of an army camp and anyone who had been touching anything metal actually was shocked or electrocuted to some degree. So we're standing outside waiting for what we thought were not going to be real patients. And before you knew it, we had somebody coming in with a heart problem and several other patients with some burns and then it became real. And uh, I think you just, you see it, you realize that all the practice and all the preparation, it just can turn on a dime and all of a sudden it's, you know, it's a real situation. So what are the sort of other other types of disasters? I mean, I saw all sorts of pictures of you. It, it didn't all look like training exercises. That's very true. <laughs> so what are what are what is it like to be boots on the ground? And because I've never done that, except you know, I mean, war is a disaster of sorts. It's it's a different kind of disaster, sure. but there's there's humanitarian efforts and and all of that, and it, it takes all different kinds of service in any kind of disaster. So what's it like boots on the ground? Yeah. I mean, in these real world situations, it's, it's way bigger than everyone thinks. People think it's, thinks it's about, you know, the medical or the supplies or the, you know, but the reality is this is humanity at its best and at its worst. I mean, the, the issues that come up, you know, ethically and all of these things, you have so many people who are in such extremes, you know, you have people who have absolutely nothing to begin with, and then the disaster strikes and, and you're caring for them. So, you know, the, the goal of really, I guess, all of it, I am, I'm trying to get to kind of the root of it is that 
it really just reinforces back, I guess, to my earlier point that it, it's a community thing and that everybody is, you know, no one is impervious from these types of disasters. And they can be, you know, like we said, the hurricanes, they can be food outages, they can be, as we're seeing now, something, you know, that's completely different, which is a virus that's taken over our, our globe. So as you start to look at, at this disaster, how do you kind of take the lessons learned? I mean, what, what do you think about when you, you compare at a, at a strategic level the other disasters that, that form and comprise our knowledge of, of how we should attack disasters? And, and you say, what are we doing now? How are we doing it? What's the playbook? That's really what I'm getting at. Yeah, I mean, I think the playbook, you know, it starts with a basis of understanding that's you know, based on facts and data. I mean, we can already see ourselves, right? The the disinformation and the hysteria, but we have to have people that are experts in the fields who are willing to put away their egos and come together collectively and, and having people that can make some of those calls. Unfortunately, in a disaster, um, emotions run high. And so you need to have a real, real clear, you know, lines of, of authority and who makes those calls. Um, I think, you know, that that's always the basis is, is really what is that common operating picture, as we would say? What is it that we're all trying to solve for? And I, I think in this case, you know, it's, it's pretty clear. So what, what does that look like in case it's not clear? Like, I mean, we've got COVID-19. We've got 50 states in America. We've, it's, it's global. It's, it's all over the place. You've got mayors and governors and the president, and you've got all sorts of community leaders. We don't have a national mask policy. We have localized recommendations that are, you know, sort of, aggressively said by some, oh, that's just a recommendation. And, and others are furious about the fact that everybody's not doing it because their reality is in so many ways different. We've got ER doctors in New York City that are guaranteeing me, old buddies of mine, it's, it's a question of when they're going to get this, not if. You've got, you know, people living in Montana who are like, eh, I, I see my neighbor, you know, once a week. I'm, this doesn't really exist to me. So how do we kind of simply attack this at either a, a localized level, a, a statewide level, a national level, boots on the ground? How should people be thinking about this? Yeah, I mean, I think echoing what the Surgeon General said, you know, several weeks ago on the on the briefing I was on, which is this is a community this is a community problem, right? So your community greatly influences exactly all those nuances that you just described, right? If your community is like you said, widespread in Montana and you don't see people very often. That's a very different problem to solve than if you're living in Brooklyn or Manhattan, um, if you're a frontline healthcare worker. And so you have to start with what you can control, right? And what you're being asked. And I think all of the things that are simple to do, like the social distancing and the awareness and being considerate and checking in on your community, those are all things that are in our control. The rest of it is really going to be up to the leaders of where we live. And there is going to be broad you know, differences. I mean, there's a lot of discussion and, and you're already bringing up some great points. Some states may completely reopen before others do. You know, even in the city of Los Angeles, where I live, we may see some neighborhoods open up long before others. And that's going to be a tough pill to swallow, right? <laughs> so it can make you feel like you have no control in a time that's already scary. What I really love about the work that you've done is that you start with the family community, right? And you you say, you know, this family unit is is where you start from, right? This is, you know, where you, you, you work and then you go out from there. You know, you look at your check on your neighbors and then you look at your, you know, your school districts and, and other people in your 
your neighborhoods and, and beyond, because those would be the ones that you, that's your reality. That's your next door, right? And, and your backyard. And like you said, it'll be different from there. It's hard, you know, it's hard for, for us in Florida to perhaps relate to someone in New York right now. It's just a different scenario. Although we can read about it and appreciate it, it just doesn't seem real unless we're actually there facing that ourselves. And I can say that even in our own home, we, we have debates about <laughs> where is the line, you know, and if, you know, we have to come to a consensus to, uh, on, among ourselves, uh, Jason and I do, how we're going to, uh, you know, abide by the social distancing. And, you know, we made a, a decision last night to not go to the beaches when they open because we were concerned that there would be a huge rush and we were we wanted to watch this and see of course in certain areas of our beaches it was it felt they would look like spring break again and it made national news you know you go out this morning early with our children and dog and it was low tide and very easy to stay a distance and and that at a distance and there wasn't a big crowd so in, in our mind we're like thinking okay so we can justify you know, maybe going out at different times, but we're just going to have to watch it and and hopefully not be part of the problem, but part of the solution. You you know, you touched on in, in your remarks, just a lot of really important elements, right? Which is that you and your community, you're, you're together, you guys have discussed it with, you know, information, credible information, and you looked at the risks and you guys aligned and, you know, somebody made the call. And so I think those are really key, you know, elements is, it does start with us, right? I mean, it does start with your own community first, just an agreement. And I think especially, you know, in a family unit, if, if there is that wide disparity in opinion, you have to agree in advance. And I tell family this all the time. When the stuff gets real, you have to have had a decision before, like who gets to make the call? right? Like who actually gets to be the one that makes the call within your family? And then how do you align so that you can kind of go as a united front back out with however you've decided um, to, to, to do those things? I mean, I'll use the example of in, in California, a lot of people are getting upset because even though the beaches are closed and the social distances, people are going outside for walks and they're not wearing masks. And that's causing a lot of concern by people, you know, like, why are you outside without masks on? And there's just, there's still a lot of confusion, unfortunately. So I think just getting credible information and aligning is really key. There's a lot of, how do we balance this, right? Because the same thing, I mean, it looks really, the optics are really bad. If you're in New York and you see a still photo of a beach in Jack's beach, and it looks like, it looks like there's not a whole lot of adherence. And so it looks like spring break did whatever it was six weeks ago. Right. Right. But, you know, if you shut down Central Park, and you say, hey, there's not enough social distancing going on. Well, what's going to happen? People are going to be on the sidewalks more. Mm -hmm. and so then you've got more crowded sidewalks. And, and for us, it's kind of that situation here. There's just no time for nuance, but there should be some time for nuance. I mean, what are the trade-offs between social isolation and loneliness and not being active versus opening it up a little bit? Yeah. And I mean, that again comes up to a risk assessment that happens at a local level. I mean, there is a lot of evidence that being outdoors and being in fresh air is, is highly beneficial, not only for mental health considerations, but even makes it more challenging. But, but we don't know what we don't know. And this will never go away. Right. So insert any disaster. Right. I mean, there's always going to be these optics, you know, people who get care faster or people who get this. And I think, you know, the best thing I, I mean, my favorite 
favorite thing to do is just ignore all that and not pay attention. Like I'm just switching off the news and I'm just reminding myself, like I can only do what I can do within my community and I can educate myself and I can educate my family and I can try to influence if I see something like that. But I recognize, and I'm sure you both do as well, the United States is vastly different. I always say to people who've traveled the whole world and haven't gone all over the United States, you know, go take a look. We don't live in the same places, right? So it's really hard to see. Yeah, it's like if someone says, hey, I've got a friend named John and he's in America. Have you met him? I mean, no, <laughs> it's just New York City is not Florida, is not New Orleans, mm -hmm. is not Kansas, is not California, is certainly not Alaska. And so I, I agree with you on this kind of community up approach, even where the optics are bad, that, that to me falls on the local leadership to over communicate why we're doing the things. And I think you're seeing a lot of failure at, at that side of it, even when it's the right thing to do. And so how does it funnel up though, when maybe a decision goes sideways or, or isn't a good decision at a, a local level, such as when one county or one beach decides to do something and not enforce social distancing? I mean, what's the right answer there? I think the right answer will present itself, unfortunately, you know, in the future. I mean, that is, you know, really the reality is that this is unprecedented in modern times. And I say that because people will say, well, we've had big viral outbreaks around the globe before, but technology has never been what it is. You know, communication's never been what it is. We haven't been able to have these looks into people's lives around the world. Right. And so I think, you know, it's going to take a really strong communication network to look at these things. And, and, and sadly, I think there are going to be mistakes. And this is something that repeats itself in history in disasters. But the really good, you know, planners, the really good cities, you know, they look at the they, they open up and say, you know what, we did something wrong, we screwed up, we've learned, and now we're going to put something into place in the future. And I guess that's what gives me hope through all this is that I think we're already starting to see some, you know, recommendations for surveillance teams, which I know sounds scary to people, but people who can go and help us track the disease and see where it's going. And I think a lot of new policies and procedures and other will come out. I will say on all the calls I sit on on a weekly basis, nobody is, in my belief, intending to do something harmful, right? And, and I think people are trying to weigh those pros and cons. And sometimes they're making a call that I maybe wouldn't make or maybe wouldn't necessarily approve of. But if you're that dissatisfied, I mean, I think you have to take that up to your local leadership and, and figure that out. And it tells you a lot about your community. But I think, you know, rather than worrying and getting caught up on the things you can't control, just I always say, try to reframe what you can control, right? You guys have already described what you can control. Even though the place you live is going to allow a little bit more freedom of movement, you're going to stay in place, you know, with your family a little bit longer because you, you know, have educated yourselves to the risks and you feel like, hey, that's safe. We can control that. And I think that's awesome. And I wish more people would do that and more people would realize like what they can and cannot do to make a difference. I'm reminded of something that Stanley McChrystal talks about in his book, Team of Teams, and, and what he's been kind of advising on in this COVID crisis is that, you know, we have to stand united, even though we are all different and, you know, we, we don't have the same problems that we're facing exactly. How do we become a, a team of teams where these communities you know, figure out like, hey, this is what's important to us. This is what we need to do to keep our communities safe and also 
you know, have some balance with keeping people employed and making sure they have their basic needs met. Um, what are you seeing in terms of like the cooperation on some of these calls? I mean, you're you're talking with leaders that are facing this on a national level, you know, and looking looking even beyond our borders for for answers and and solutions. So, what, what do you what do you think it's going to would it take to to get people to to unite as as a team of teams? It's it's already happening. I mean, I can see it, for example, with the testing capability. Companies, you know, that had the testing capabilities are coming together in a way that historically, because of their you know business models, maybe wouldn't have. State of California just put together a, a hefty board of you know hundreds of thought leaders to think about the state of California, and they're partnering with Oregon and Washington. So I think there are a lot of people coming together in untraditional ways. But I even see it at the smallest, like micro level. I see, you know, children, you know, writing cards to, you know, the nursing homes and and places. And I see, so I think there's a ton of opportunity. I think I'm one of those people that when I see these catastrophic events, what I mostly see aside the horror and, and the things that we can't avoid is most people want to be a helper and most people want to find hope and most people do want to do something for somebody else. And it can be so small. It doesn't have to be so grand scale. And I think if those smaller movements continue to trickle up, um, it will get better. I think eventually, you know, as we slowly begin to reopen, like this, you know, wearing a mask, if you look at the rest of the world, right, the places that have, you know, lots of issues with air quality and others, that's just normal, right? Like, it's not a big deal like it is here. And it's just, it's, it's, it's been difficult um, because we haven't faced something like this as a nation and it is going to bring out the worst in us um, with fear. But I, but I do think things are starting to happen in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you touched upon something that's really a part, a big part of your story. And that's, you know, working with children and families to prepare for disasters um, I know that you had um, a project that you worked on, a passion project called Lady Bug Out, which, um, you know, has military origins with a bug out bag and, you know, providing some some uh, something like this for children so they can actually be a helper, you know, following in good, good old Fred Rogers footsteps of, you know, looking for helpers, being inspired by them, finding a way that you can help too, even if it's small. Um, I think that's a really important point to that people hear because it, it it's motivating and inspiring and it also is uplifting and when you feel like you know you can't make a difference there actually are small ways you know just putting the the rainbow um, pictures in the window you know the the things that are brightening people's day and giving kids something to do um, I I've seen that with my own children that they've they've been motivated to to be kinder and to be more helpful because of that. And it's actually helping us as a family unit to, to get by. Um, tell me a little bit more about Lady Bug Out and, and what you've learned from that project. Really the genesis of it is in California, a lot of children have to take some sort of emergency supplies to school from a very young age. And there are recommendations um, about what those things should be. And they also include a letter. 
And here I am, you know, teaching disaster response around the world, talking about vulnerable communities in which children are front and center of those vulnerable communities. And I'm, I'm realizing, you know, that my daughter, when, when I first went to Albania to teach disaster response, she was like five months old. And I'm like, she's fine. You know, somebody's carrying her. We got her covered. But then I went to the coast of Africa when she was uh, three. And I'm like, okay, she can run away. She doesn't have any of the words to like describe what she's thinking if there was this big earthquake. And it's going to take me days to get home. And I love my husband, but he works in entertainment and not disaster planning. So my family is really at risk. Like we're all vulnerable. And so that passion project really had me hit the pause button. And what I started with was what's inherently different right? Um, besides the vocabulary, besides like the, you know, ability to process this type of information. And really what I kept coming back to with all the experts I pulled together, whether it was the former Surgeon General of the United States Air Force or some psychologists um, and school teachers was that we need to give our children an opportunity to have a voice and a say, and that the the desire to protect them and, and do it all is actually contra, you know, to what they need. Um, you don't give it to them all at once, but you involve them in little pieces. Pieces. So that's how it started. And it just kind of reverberated through the community. It's, you know, I, I built a bag at first because kids are very physical and they need to see things and touch things. But the last year, what's, what's really come out of it is that's cool. But what's even cooler is the connection they're having with their families and with their friends. You know, we've got little kids now running around in my community and let's face it, right guys, my community is my lifeline. So I'm really excited that they're getting up to speed, but we've got little kids doing earthquake drills with no fear, you know, schooling their parents on what to do if, and, and they're not afraid. They're proud to have like that information. I mean, that's exactly how the military does it, right? I mean, they try to prepare you for disasters by training you to face them and is in realistic scenarios as they possibly can. That's right. And so it seems like you've just taken that type of process and just with a with a big smile and a warm heart said, "Hey, we can we can make this work for for the kids too." And I know that I'm getting some math refreshers and I'm getting some English <laughs> refreshers from from our 8-year-old, right? And that's really cool at at our house. There's this bottom up effect of, man, I, yeah. I mean, and, and so when you get to disaster planning, I mean, what are kind of the, the steps that you look at or, or how can parents involve children so that children involve parents? Well, I think for parents, I think the big thing is reframing disasters. Everyone loves to just go with catastrophe, right? They're waiting for this big sentinel event like the tornado or the hurricane. But I always remind parents that the real disaster really is that something happens that disrupts you from being with your loved ones, right? I mean, that's the disaster, especially to a young child. And so I think reframing it is really the first step and then getting parents to get out of their own way. Parents, you know, one of my, my daughter's teachers, I love it. She always says, stop making your stuff their stuff. Like we, we tend to put in all this experience that we've had to include that fear and say like, well, this is too scary for our children because it's too scary for me. So I'm just going to avoid it. So making it digestible, you know, making them step back and pause and real like, you know, I always joke with some families, if you can talk to your kids about, you know, in an age appropriate way, get them ready for an earthquake, you know, sex, drugs and rock and roll is going to be no problem because you've set this like framework of conversation and trust and transparency and tackling scary stuff together. No problem, huh? <laughs> Never know. I don't have a teenager I yet, know. so I may. We don't either. So, <laughs> old, other parents are probably giggling right now. But exactly, you know, I, I love this part because I grew up um, 
you know, something that my dad always did. It was, you know, have us run fire drills. And, you know, he, he would always do things like, Hey, Emily, here's a bat, you know, keep this by your bed. If you ever needed to break out of a window or, you know, use it for some reason. And at some point, I mean, I would always think it like, you know, as a young kid, I'd be like, why would I use that? And then, you know, something would happen. And I'd be like, I might need to use the bat, you know, like I felt it, it was, it was a small gesture, but it was empowering, right? It, it yeah. was basically saying, Here, you are capable and I trust that you are going to make a good decision. And, you know, we see, because we've been spending a lot more time with our children lately, you know, just 24-7 for um, going on seven weeks now because of, we had spring break before all this stuff too, <laughs> back to back. But um, we're seeing, you know, our actions are emulated a lot more than our words. And I, I think, you know, I've, I've seen some of the work that you've done and, you know, showing, you know, the kids how you are preparing and that you're doing so in a calm way. Um, I think, you know, they're going to take that to another step, you know, for themselves and be able to prepare as well. And, you know, like you said, giving them digestible information, like I have, we don't turn on the news either. I mean, it's just, we, we like to, to read it, um, you know, in magazines or, you know, checking in different resources, especially on this stuff to just, you know, get what you need and then, and then get out and worry about, you know, your day to day. And, you know, I just gave my eight-year-old, um, a podcast that I had listened to that was, you know, basically talking to kids about coronavirus. And I just said, Hey, if you're interested, let's give it a listen. And she came downstairs and like, was rattling off all these facts and asking all these questions. And, you know, this is, this is like six weeks in. And we hadn't really had a, a talk like this yet. And I realized how much she was ready to do it at that point. You know, it, it wasn't a scary thing. It was like a, an intellectual sort of problem to solve. Yeah, I love that. And I, I love that example. I mean, my five-year-old had some very funny thoughts about coronavirus early on. Some of them, I don't even know, even like mired in politics that she clearly heard from like other people in her community. And, you know, my husband and I were chuckling, but I think you hit on something really importantly is that we don't have to overwhelm or like, you know, boil the ocean and be like, we're going to talk about the origins of the virus and we're going to discuss the globalists and the reopening of the United States. <laughs> but it's just starting with sort of like, like, what's their curiosity? Like, what is it that's interesting? Like, um, you know, for my daughter, the big thing about the coronavirus was just, you know, a big understanding about, man, we were kind of dirty. Like, we weren't washing our hands as often as we really should have, right? Like, we, you know, that was her big aha. Like, wow, you know, we wash our hands before dinner and after the bathroom, but did we always wash our hands when we left the grocery store? Did we always wash our hands when we did this? And so for her that like, she's five. So age appropriate, it's kind of all just kind of, and it's become almost amusement, right? Like, man, we were dirty and now we're going to be cleaner and everybody's going to try to be cleaner. And that's fun and age appropriate. And, you know, maybe in a few years, she'll be at your daughter's level, you know, with more questions. But again, you have to give them the words, you have to include them. I mean, I'll use another example. I was talking to a woman in San Diego and she's got a three-year-old and she's about uh, kind of about the whole make our stuff, your stuff. She's like, well, you know, we're, we're going to start opening, you know, the city a little bit more in a couple in the next couple of weeks. And my daughter's this big hugger. She loves, she's three. She runs up to everyone and hugs them. And I love that about her. And, you know, it, it brought her to tears. And I was like, okay. And so what I'm hearing is, you know, 
you're afraid that if she can't hug, this is going to be this massive thing for her. And she's like, yeah, I really am. And so I'm like, what are you going to do to prepare for that? You got three weeks. This is great. We got all this time or three or four more weeks before, you know, you might be put in this situation. And she's like, well, what could I do? I'm like, ask her, say, Hey, you know, we're in a place where hugs are going to be not the standard for a little while. What's another super cool way we can greet our friends. And like, that's enough, right? Like, so I think just take digestible little chunks and, and do what you can. And that doesn't matter how big or small you are. There's something little we can all do to help keep us safer. So I think her daughter's working on like an interpretive dance that will be her new greeting <laughs> of hello instead of a hug. But it, it now this kid feels excited, right? She's been a part of the solution and isn't just kind of passively waiting. Because think about it the other way. If they, ha- if they didn't have that conversation in three or four weeks from now, when her daughter goes to run and hug her friend for the first time, you know what her mom's going to tackle her there's going to be tears she's not going to understand why she can't hug her friend and instead they can use this time to come up with a plan sounds like we're talking about a lot of communication right i mean talking is good it's that old sort of hey gather around the dinner table let's talk about our day and what we're going to do you know tomorrow and what's going on in the world isn't that lovely? I mean, that is the most upside i think of the coronavirus is that we Oftentimes I think think we're communicating. I'll use my own, you know, my family. We do a lot of like texting or things like that, but now we're zooming and we're talking again. And I think that's the only upside of some of these, you know, terrible events is when we are forced to slow down and be unified by a single mission, which is to defeat coronavirus, right? Then it's like, hey, let's talk, let's check in. <laughs> yeah. And you're having to really check in too, right? It's yeah. not that, you know, you have to face these bigger questions and, 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 and you have to put these other little details into place too. Like you said, who's the decision maker, you know, when, if, you know, you have to to bug out or you need to decide, are we going to participate in this? I mean, I know that Easter became a big like talking point for a lot of people in Passover, you know, like, do we get together? Like, what are the risks, you know, is this person, what is their exposure? Right. You know, you know, we, so-and-so, you know, is married to someone who works in the healthcare, you know, industry and has, you know, a lot of exposure. So maybe we can't get together with them. You know, you're, so you're having to ask these tough questions that like they're uncomfortable, but, but they're breaking down these communication barriers, you know, absolutely, and, uh, and making families and people explain to each other better. Hey, I really care about you, but I can't, we can't see you right now because we will put you at greater risk. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's, that's such a great point. And, you know, I always laugh. I mean, before this, you know, recent situation or in any disaster, I, I highly recommend families decide who gets to make that call and then put it in writing. So that you, like, <laughs> like, even if it's like a text note in your like phone, um, you know, when we had the recent big fires in California that shut down the 405 freeway, um, my husband wanted to go to work and I'm like, you're not going to work. And he's like, yes, I am. I'm not affected. You know, the road I need to take isn't taken. And I'm like, nope, we decided I get to make the call. And what I know is that you're a burden to society if you're out on the road when they ask us to stay home and he, oh he wasn't happy about it but I would always say like that, that that's where it gets interesting right right I love that actually and and you bring up a good point about don't be a burden to society right don't tax these resources that are already stretched and we have a funny story I mean we we live in hurricane country and um you know 
we didn't actually write that down, but I think after hearing you, we will, we will do something like that. But I just automatically, I was very pregnant, um, one time when, when a hurricane came through and I got dubbed the uh, crazy pregnant lady because I just demanded CPL, the CPL. That's, I still, I still have that nickname, but I got, I, I earned that because I basically demanded that I become the decision maker because I was, I felt super vulnerable. Um, I didn't like what I was seeing. And, you know, fortunately our house did not, you know, suffer, but it could have. And, and, and I was happier that we made the decision to evacuate and I didn't, you know, have my baby, you know, unprepared in, in the car with my other children watching sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Look, life gets real, right? I mean, we have the best of intents, but uh, I, I mean, give yourself a break. Pregnancy hormones have me doing all, you know, <laughs> it is a serious. Oh, don't yeah, worry. I, I give her a trust. break too. Oh, <laughs> good. I'm glad. <laughs> so there's always a trade-off of risk though, right? And in that case, it was, you know, what's the risk of being on the road? Where, where are you going right. to go that's actually safer? I mean, these, these hurricanes hurricanes are a lot different. I mean, it's the same mm -hmm. type of process, but you have, I mean, they announced an, an evacuation when the hurricane was south of the Bahamas. I mean, that's, right. that's days and days and days away. And to, to frame this out, there is an enormous amount of CYA in, in terms of disaster prep. And I think that things get malaligned when the people who have been around longer in, in specifically in, in communities like ours that's used to hurricanes when they just don't listen to it. Like, hey, there's a mandatory evacuation from the beaches and, and the hurricane's five days away. It's like, no, there's no conceivable way you're going to get people to leave. Yep. The difference that I see with, with COVID-19 is that it's invisible. I mean, we're like walking on the moon right now. Everyone is, is Neil Armstrong because it's like, this is a first. It's global. And so the rules naturally change, but gravity kind of remains the same, right? I mean, at the community levels is where the real decisions are being made. And that's kind of where the rubber's hitting the road and people's reactions and, and their anger in a lot of cases. And you do have this kind of situation where households are having conversations. And I've been told now that we're going to decide who between the CIA case officer and the Green Beret is going to be able to make the disaster <laughs> decision. So I really appreciate your, your input and advice on that. I'm, I'm looking forward to, to, to those discussions. I, I usually lose. So we'll, we'll just kind of, um, if, if I were a, a betting man in Vegas, which, uh, I know they need business these days, but. <laughs> well, you remember know. you'll have multiple decisions to make and that's the good news. So I think, you know, yeah. understanding what you're both good at and then being that granular, right? Like one of you might be the medical call. One of you might be the, you know, the transportation call. So don't worry. I think there's enough opportunity for you <laughs> both to have big opinions. <laughs> Great. So to sort of put this into perspective, I mean, what's the kind of process that someone out there listening and they have a family or they have, you know, some friends or whatever, some people that they're living with. I mean, how do you approach the mindset? Because I'm, I'm with you. I mean, this is not the last pandemic that we're going to face. It's also definitely not the last disaster. And it might not be identical to hurricanes or to forest fires or to earthquakes, but your mindset is, is what's adaptive if you're ready. So how do we do that at, at the family level? Yeah. Well, I think understanding and, and really framing up, I think don't try to solve for everything. Like you guys mentioned hurricanes is probably top of mind when it's not pandemic, 
you know, time or where I live, I would say for us, you know, little to no notice type events like earthquakes are much scarier for my family than fires. Cause to your point, we tend to know when they've started and we have time to evacuate. So I think picking the one topic, I, I think to start and then educating yourself. And you've already mentioned you have, you know, an older child who, who's ready to take on more. So instead of you two becoming the expert on, you know, the hurricane season, like maybe divide and conquer and say like, do you want to be in charge of a part of it? Like what appeals to you? Do you want to be in charge of evacuation routes or understanding the difference between warnings? And, you know, I think so divide and conquer, get credible information. You guys already said something I love, which is turning off the rhetoric, right? Like, especially now, like just go to sources that are giving you what you need <laughs> so that you can educate yourself and then definitely divide and conquer and then make it a lifestyle. Like I'll, I'll use an example. Like we talk a lot in our house about shelf stable food and not and food that's not shelf stable. And when we were free to move around the country, we talk a lot about that's why we have these big buckets or these big bins of you know supplies in case we did have a power outage in the city um, following an earthquake. But to reinforce that behavior, whenever we go on a road trip or a trip on an airplane, she gets to go pick out, you know, something to eat from these big old bins that normally would sit uninteracted with. And she's super pumped. She's super excited. It's stuff that she normally doesn't get to eat. And it's just such a little gesture, but it just reminds her kind of of the behavior that we're trying to create. So, you know, make it part of your lifestyle, live it, show it, but don't make it this big, scary, like, you know, <laughs> you gotta like, everybody has to do everything all at once, just little tiny things that you can incorporate. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, we, we say rule number one is always look cool. Right. And that doesn't just <laughs> mean sunglasses and, and, you know, a beard and, and a gun in war, right. It's when disaster strikes, whatever it looks like, wherever you are, it just stay calm. For sure. That's the best way to be in any type of disaster or, or anything in general, really, but especially during disasters. And what, what I love that you're saying is that there's a generational and an empowerment component that comes to this where it's not just about us. I mean, we all want our kids to outlive us. That's just the way it is. And, you know, they'll be able to face these types of disasters because they will have learned under, under us staying calm throughout disasters and giving them that, that slice of the pie, even if you're going to double check the route or double check anything for your kids, right? For sure. There's the empowerment that comes with, man, mom and dad, let me do this. Or I got to do this. And I, they're a part of the team then. Yeah. You trusted them. You trusted them to help be part of the solution. And who doesn't want that, right? I mean, we all know that from our, our time in the service, but when somebody gives you a, ta you know, a task or an opportunity to, to be part of the bigger mission, you stand a little taller, right? And I think that trust is just so cool for kids. Um, you know, my daughter, she's been, you know, allowed to cook on the stove since she was about four with me standing there, of course, and a healthy, you know, overview of, you know, safety. But like a, a lot of people look at me like crazy and I'm like, it's totally a controlled, safe environment. And she's super excited. And then I see it bleed into other categories, right? I see it in the way she interacts with others and, and the way she'll take on kind of the world. And that's my hope for all of us is that our children feel trusted and part of our community. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I can relate to that as well, because there's ways that we have to create these learning environments for our children that, you know, they, they will get feedback, right? But, you know, maybe not end up in the hospital, right? Totally. <laughs> it was so funny. Jason's mom came over one time and, and she came on a bike ride with the kids and she was just 
just really nervous about how far ahead they were going and if they were stopping. And, you know, listen, I, I take them on a, a route that doesn't have a lot of car traffic. And I, you know, I keep them at a, a distance that I'm comfortable with, but it was just not her comfort level because this isn't her normal. But, mm-hmm. you know, I want them to learn you can go a little bit ahead, but you're you're going to have to stop at the stop signs and you're going to have to look both ways. I mean, how are, how are they going to learn otherwise? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm, I'm not going to be able to keep them locked in and I don't want to do that. Um, and I will say one of the benefits of, you know, these essential sort of outings that we've had is that we've gotten a lot of practice on road safety, yeah. you know, on our bikes and scooters and, and walking. And the other day, they were all over the place. And I kept, you know, sort of like giving an order and it wasn't being followed. And finally, I just said, stop. And I circled them up and we had a little team meeting and I said, this is how we're going to proceed. And the whole way home, there was like single file line. They were keeping each other in line. They were, I said, you are the caboose. You're the leader. And if anyone's going out of line, you're the person that calls, you know, that lets people know. So it's like empowering them, giving them a job. You know, teachers are great at this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not surprised you, you called upon teachers to give you advice on, on your ladybug out project because teachers do this all the time. I mean, their classrooms would not be able to function if they didn't delegate jobs you know, and, and the same with our families, you know, if we all day are trying to clean up after our kids and, you know, keep them entertained and all these, you know, it's, we're going to run ourselves ragged. You know, we have to give them bits and pieces and make them feel like they're part of this as well. Yeah, absolutely. Emily sort of left out the part that within a 10 block radius, everybody fell in line, right? It wasn't just (laughs) our, our family. It was, Hey, we're all on the same team, get in line. And then everyone was just, you know, (laughs) rank and file. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. So what I love about that story is it wasn't you just telling them to get in the line is that you gave them different jobs. Right. And I love that because I think that's at the root of it. Right. They probably were so proud. I I bet they were fighting for different jobs. (laughs) It just was a different group of kids. And, and, you know, I should have known this, but I mean, I was, what I was doing wasn't working. Right. And, you know, this happens a lot. It's a lot of trial and error. Right. And, and finally I said, you know what, let's, let's start over and, you know, let's talk about this as a, as a team. And they, you know, they, they contributed and, and, you know, my older one leads the way and says like, well, maybe if I lead, you know, and I tell them to follow me, you know, sort of thing. And then the other ones, well, I can do this too. So like you said, it's a conversation with our kids and the same with what we're dealing with now, like letting them be a part of this. Absolutely. So did you ever see that movie Kindergarten Cop with Arnold Schwarzenegger? <laughs> it's been a while. I refresh my memory. Okay. Memories. So he shows up and he's kind of a undercover police officer going after the dad of one of the students in, in the kindergarten class. Right. And he shows up and it's just they're doing fire drills in school and it's just pure chaos. I mean, he's, he's literally grabbing him under his arms and the kids are hanging all over him. He's like, go, you know, it's like his version of get to the chopper, right? Except it's get outside. And, you know, by the end, he's like the other teachers where everyone is just staying calm and there's a single file line and, you know, you proceed in that fashion and it's actually slow is smooth, smooth is fast is the sort of firearms adage, right? If you, if you really try to squeeze the trigger really fast, you're going to miss. That's just how it goes. Slow is smooth, smooth is fast. And so I, I've really appreciated you two specifically in this conversation because I have a tendency to be like Arnold Schwarzenegger in kindergarten cop <laughs> and just grab him and just muscle through and say, hey, follow me. And, and there's just a lot of practical 
advice that you two have have imparted here on how families can stay more prepared and just the demeanor that that we can all project to to get through this as as families as communities as as a nation so what's your sort of parting advice or your what you're going to be paying attention to moving forward or what are you looking forward to well i mean ironically like i alluded to earlier i'm i'm looking forward to things slowly returning to normal, whatever this new normal will be. And what I'm going to be spending the next couple of weeks doing with my own daughter is just preparing her together, right? Like for what this new normal is going to look like, right? I mean, that's the part I'm most excited about because it's, it's been very interesting to see what she's thinking about and it's really fun to pause. And so I'm going to be asking her questions like, you know, who do you think is going to be able to do a play date with you and stay six feet away outside? Right. She knows her friends better than I do. Right. So like, who should those first play dates be with? You know, who do you think is going to do okay with that? Like, you know, little things like that. Um, so I'm just excited to, to talk to her about where we're headed and, you know, just really hopeful that, you know, and actually very grateful for the time that I've had with her so far. Um, like you said, you got to sometimes slow it down. And I'm really hopeful that the extra communication that my husband and I are spending together, we have like a five minute date night where we just talk about adult stuff, you know, and we weren't doing that as much as we, we used to try to make a big date night and make it this big deal. Right. And I'm like, you know, we could actually just talk to each other for five whole minutes, like <laughs> five minute date night, huh? That could be a thing. It sounds ridiculous, but I'm like, we're probably going to spend more time than when we would actually get dressed up and go on a date night once a month, right? Like if we just talk every day. So I'm kind of hopeful that we're starting to build a foundation that will serve us in the future, um, that will continue to reinforce that when, you know, even when the world isn't as chaotic as it is now, that we need those touch points. We need that quality time together to kind of reset and regroup and then kind of plan. Well, I just want to extend a big thanks on behalf of Emily and myself and, and all of our listeners out there, thanks for coming on the show and for, for sharing a lot of your wisdom. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Stay safe. Thanks, Linda. You too. All right, so Linda has left the digital building. What'd you think, Em? Linda's someone that I would want to have as my neighbor if disaster struck. You know, I feel like she is a just a resource and someone that you can relate to and Linda's the person who has her her things together and is going to be looking out to give good advice and direction to others. I mean, she's a, a natural leader. You you don't get to go through in the Air Force for as long as she is. It has has gone through and 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 not pick up on those things. And you know, you think, oh, it's just dealing with kids, so it's not as important. It's on the contrary. This is one of the 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 more difficult and you know, you have to be really a trusted source of information to to relate to kids on that level. Yeah, it was fun to hear you two go back and forth. I mean, you're you're both kind of no nonsense about a lot of stuff, and there's just a calming element, and everyone can learn something from from that. So much of it is about your your attitude in times like this, and and that will that will bleed out. And, and so what we're living through is, is what a lot of people are living through. These are, these are stressful times only because chaos is, is new. It's the opposite of inertia. We get really comfortable with inertia, right? I know my routine and, and we're creatures that crave that. And here we're thrown completely out of that. And it's kind of, how do we not go too far that it's just impossible? You know, how, if you say, hey, I'm going to lose a hundred pounds this year because 
you know, it, and it's going to require a 180 degree turn on your whole lifestyle. It's, it's probably not going to work. That's why new year's resolutions fail, but how do we take this seriously and do the things that are most important and then ad adopt some new routines and then take some of those routines as this, as this passes and keep some of those routines as part of our, our normal, our new normal kind of, kind of life. Cause there's a lot of silver linings that we're seeing here. And if one of those is that we help prepare our kids for other disasters in the future, we give them a stronger mindset and we get closer together, tighter together because we're in this together, then, then those are great silver linings that I think I hope in, endure. I have a lot of conversations with other parents, in, including you, Jason. And I, you know, Linda and I talked about this as well. We, we often sometimes worry, like, how do we prepare our kids? How do we make them resilient? There's a lot of, you know, parenting books on this. This is a, a, a really important topic in education these days. Like, how do you teach them to make good decisions and, you know, basically to grow into sufficient and, you know, leaders in, in society? And really, this is a golden opportunity that we're facing right now. And, you know, the whole sort of a crisis is a terrible thing to waste applies to children as well. And I think a lot of people are already seeing this, that, you know, things that they thought were important and the routines that they had, they're, they're, they're having, they're, we're forced to rethink them. And the thought is that what, what actually you like doing, you know, these games that you're playing more with kids and, and this whole idea of gamifying preparation and, and thoughts about it is really important for kids and putting it on the level, like Linda said, in digestible sort of points and making it fun for them. These are, I mean, this is going to impact our children. And I like to think that there's going to be so many more positive ways that they're impacted um, than not. And we should, we should em embrace that and really, you know, continue it. You know, I've had friends, we've talked about this, like, how will this affect them socially? Well, we, we don't really know yet, but, you know, like with, what Linda brought up, you know, let, let's talk to the kids. Let's have a conversation with them. How, how can you show your affection in a way that's not a hug? You know, how can you um, still appreciate your neighbor? I mean, I've seen so many wonderful acts of kindness, like someone left a ladybug rock on our porch today for our children to find. You know, I've seen kids going around and drawing chalk drawings on their, their neighbor's driveways. These are probably neighbors they, they didn't know <laughs> before this. And now they're making these connections and our communities are actually getting stronger now. So leadership in a time of crisis is one of those big, hairy, audacious goals that people might have for themselves, right? You say, hey, I want to be that guy who's storming the hill in war or whatever the case may be. And it's, it's not that simple, right? I mean, in a times like this, this is a crisis. And if you have people in your community, you have others that you're responsible for at your home, leadership takes all different kinds of forms. And the absolute way to do it is to stay calm and just communicate. If you have kids, and that's a big part of, of this topic, I mean, leadership in a time of crisis, communication is empowerment. Ask questions of your kids, have conversations with them, stay calm. And I just loved all the tips about giving them small bite-sized things that, that they can do. And oh, by the way, this will work for yourself as well. I mean, if, if you're sitting out there and 
don't have a family or those types of things. I mean, take the incremental steps. You don't become Rambo overnight. You don't become a home prepper overnight. And I think that's the step too far for a lot of people out there that we're trying to, to caution against because it's an unrealistic goal. If you say, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be like whomever on TV, the ultimate prepper out of this, we're going to start to get a little bit more distance between us and this pandemic. And, and it's going to turn into the New Year's resolution that just didn't happen. Right. And it's also driven by fear. That's not something that's going to be productive in the end because it's going to be, there's going to be dread attached to it. And something I'd like to add is that, you know, leaders and leadership have a lot of different um, forms. You know, you can be quiet grandmother type, you know, leader, you know, who's not from the front lines charging, but, you know, in the home, they're the ones, you know, creating a calm sense that's, um, you know, keeping people, you know, happy. And, you know, sometimes, you know, just keeping people fed is a big part of this. You know, these, these are our, the Maslow's hierarchy of basic needs. I mean, how... How comforting is, you know, when you think about when somebody gives you, you know, I always say like a peanut butter and jelly is always better when someone else makes it for you, right? Why is that? It just, it's a, it's an act of kindness. It's small, but it's like, you made this for me and, you know, it's, it's a gift. And, and there's a lot of these things happening now and things that we need to continue because, you know, this is, this is the whole part. Like, how can you contribute if you're not a healthcare worker, if you're not an essential worker, does that make me non-essential? Absolutely not. I'm still can find a way to contribute to society by checking in on my neighbors, by making sure I'm taking care of myself. I mean, I loved her five minute date. You know, I think we had one of those last night <laughs> unplanned, but you know, I had to get a little vulnerable. I had to tell, you know, tell you that I was having a hard time with parenting that day. And, you know, I was feeling like I wasn't being my best self. And by admitting that um, to you, that, you know, I just had a hard day with the kids and I yelled at them a little more than I wanted to, that it, it actually made me sleep better that night, you know? And, um, you know, these are the kind of things that we need to do is it's okay to be vulnerable. You don't have to be Rambo, you know, being the kindergarten cop wasn't actually in the beginning, wasn't the right move. The right move is building trust and, and building bridges with people, including the people in your own home. So we're all in it together. We're all kind of going through this together. If you're stressed out, you're, you're not alone. It's just tomorrow's a new day. The sun will rise. Keep your calm, over communicate, talk to your kids, talk to people that you can talk to, help your grandmother learn how to, how to Skype or Zoom or whatever, you know, spend the extra time. It, it might be really frustrating. Social isolation is, is a real problem. Let's, let's not do that. Let's bring people in, into the fold in, in ways that we can that are smart. And so this has been a lot of fun. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time.